Hello, my name is Ho Jun Yoon. You're listening to Medicine on the Way. It is August 2013, and this is episode number 13, and today's topic is pseudotumor cerebri. Pseudotumor cerebri, or also known as benign intracranial hypertension, or idiopathic intracranial hypertension, is an increased intracranial pressure in the absence of a clear, distinctive etiology. This is a syndrome rather than a disease, so you may hear numerous pathophysiologies instead of an established one. Like I usually like to do, let us review some physiology of cerebrospinal fluid, or CSF, before we discuss pseudotumor cerebri. The cerebrospinal fluid, or shortly CSF, surrounds the central nervous system, which includes the brain, and spinal cord. Not only it works as a protection um, to the central nervous system, the CSF provides buoyancy as well. You can imagine the brain and spinal cord floating in the CSF, and the significance of this is decreasing their weight. The brain is about 1,500 grams, but the weight decreases to 50 grams, when suspended in CSF. Other functions of CSF include maintaining a constant volume-pressure relationship inside the head, removing waste products such as CO2, lactate, and hydrogen ions because there are no lymphatic channels. The average intracranial volume is about 1,700 milliliter. The volume of the brain is from 1,200 to 1,400 milliliter, blood 150 milliliter, and CSF from 70 to 160 milliliter. Therefore, CSF occupies about 10% of the intracranial volume. CSF is produced mainly by the coronoid plexuses in the lateral, third, and fourth ventricles at a rate of 22 milliliter per hour. From the formation in the coronoid plexus of the lateral ventricles, the CSF flows downward through the third ventricle, aqueduct, fourth ventricle, and foramina of megandi located medially and lushica laterally at the base of the medulla to the perimedullary and perispinal subarachnoid spaces, then around the brainstem, and superiorly to the basal and ambient cisterns through the tentorial aperture, and finally to the lateral and superior surfaces of cerebral hemispheres where most of it is absorbed. A term transmental pressure is the pressure difference between the ventricles and the subarachnoid spaces, which is usually slightly above zero. 
an obstruction in a part of CSF circulatory pathway rises, the transmental pressure compressing the periventricular tissues and resulting in ventricular enlargement and transependymal flow of CSF. CSF is absorbed by arachnoid villi. The arachnoid villi are most numerous on both sides of the superior sagittal sinus and present at the base of the brain and around the spinal cord roots as well. CSF passes through the villi at a linearly increasing rate as CSF pressures increase above 68 millimeter water pressure. The flow of CSF can be understood with the Ohm's law, which states voltage equals current times resistance. The voltage in this case is the pressure difference between the CSF and the venous system, which is pressure of CSF minus pressure of the venous system. The current represents the flow rate of CSF, and this, as we just learned, is about 22 milliliter per hour, or 0.3 milliliter per minute. The resistance is just a resistance to absorb CSF. If we rearrange the equation, we have pressure of CSF minus pressure of venous system equals to current times resistance. So let's rearrange it. Then it becomes pressure of CSF equals pressure of venous system plus current times resistance. So I simply um, put pressure of venous system from left side of equation to the right side of equation. Because current times resistance is such a small number, we can ignore it in clinical settings and appreciate the main contributor to CSF pressure is the venous pressure. In other words, CSF and intracranial pressure are largely affected not by CSF outflow resistance, but by the vascular pressures. There is one more important concept when we discuss the physiology of CSF and intracranial pressure, and that is the Monroe-Kelly Doctrine. This doctrine explains that the intracranial contents are composed of three substances, brain tissue, blood, and CSF. Confined in an intact and rigid cranium, an increase of any of these three components elevates the intracranial pressure. Therefore, to maintain a certain level of intracranial pressure, the other components have to be sacrificed when one increases. For instance, when there is an increased production of CSF, either brain tissue has to be displaced or blood volume has to be decreased, or both. 
The Monroe Kelly Doctrine has to be understood with intracranial compliance. Intracranial compliance is simply changes in intracranial pressure for a given change in intracranial volume. Intracranial pressure increases with volume elevation, and there is a dramatic increase shown once intracranial pressure reaches above. 25 millimeter mercury. The most widely accepted pathophysiology of pseudotumor cerebri is an obstruction in the venous sinuses. As explained above, an obstruction increases the resistance to CSF absorption and thus increases intracranial pressure. However, we do not know yet what the nature of This obstruction is. Some suggestions of the obstruction are thrombolism from anticardiolipin antibodies or venous stenosis. Others include impaired absorptive function of arachnoid villi, intracranial venous hypertension due to increased intraabdominal and cardiac filling pressures. And an excess of extracellular fluid within the cranium. There are more causes of pseudotumor cerebri, including chronic pulmonary disease, systemic lupus erythematosus, uremia, hypoparathyroidism, hypothyroidism, Addison disease, vitamin A toxicity, excessive doses of tetracycline, and oral contraceptives. The signs and symptoms of pseudotumor cerebri include headache, papilledema, in the absence of focal neurologic signs, CSF abnormalities, ventricular enlargement, and intracranial mass. Headaches are usually described as fluctuating and dull over a period of weeks and months. Some visual changes, such as blurred vision, dizziness. And horizontal diplopia can be associated with the headache. Unilateral and bilateral abducens palsy and fine nystagmus on far lateral gaze are other clinical findings. Pseudotumor cerebri is most commonly seen in overweight female, and no clear correlation has been found between this population and pseudotumor cerebri. The CSF pressure is elevated in the range of 250 to 450 millimeter water pressure. There are fluctuations of the CSF pressure when monitored over several hours, with increased pressure lasting 20 to 30 minutes, with a rapid fall to normal level. MRI and CT demonstrate normal size of the ventricles without any detectable mass. In some cases, venous sinus thrombosis can be detected by careful attention to the appearance of the superior sagittal and lateral sinus on the T1 weighted MRI or on a contrast enhanced CT scans. As a general measure. Weight reduction has to be always encouraged. Best outcome results are usually associated with a successful weight reduction. 
It is unknown yet whether surgical approach is definitely needed to reduce weight in pseudotumor cerebri cases. Lumbar puncture is repeated to maintain the pressure at a normal level. Approximately 25% patient recover within six months with the repeated lumbar puncture and successful weight reduction. Acetazolamide or other osmotic agents are the first treatment for those without visual loss. Side effects include paresthesia and nausea. Glycerol or carbonic anhydrase inhibitors such as acetazolamide or furosemide are given to in order to reduce CSF formation. If acetazolamide fails, a lumbar peritoneal shunt can be considered. However, this procedure has some complications such as obstructing or dislodging the shunt in obese patients. So it is not as popular as, as it was in the past. However, the success rate and the visual improvement rate is still good to consider those who are resistant to acetazolamide treatment. Corticosteroids can be helpful, but its efficacy has not always been consistent. Knowing the side effects of corticosteroids, it is advised to use them cautiously at this moment. Fenestration of the optic nerve sheath is suggested for those with vision loss. This procedure consists of partial unroofing of the orbit and intraorbital incision of the dural arachnoid sheath around the optic nerve. Complications include visual loss and limited intracranial pressure reduction only for one year or less. Because of these complications, a lumboperitoneal shunt may be suggested before a fenestration of the optic nerve sheath is considered. A careful search for the cause of venous obstruction has to be considered when the CSF pressure remains elevated and the pupilledema becomes chronic despite of these treatments. Antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, sickle cell disease, Interventional vascular techniques and thrombolysis should be considered as differentials and additional treatments. Okay, this is it for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe. My name is Ho Jun Yoon. This is Medicine on the Way.